BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast. Uh, today we have Dr. Taylor Martin in person. Uh, so this is very exciting. We're gonna sit down and um, just kind of go back and forth and talk about things that are relevant to you know my field, his field of work, uh, things that we're both you know, interested in from a like public health and health outcome standpoint. So welcome to the podcast, welcome back. Thank you, I'm so happy to be here in beautiful Kansas City. Um, as you know, I'm, I'm living in LA right now, and so it's nice to get out here in the, the beautiful weather and, and, and green trees. Yeah, just missing the surfing from California, but not a lot of that here in Kansas. Not a lot of that here, but looking forward to getting back to it next week. Awesome. All right. So I guess we're going to start with, you know, you have your credentials, you're a, a DO, and you also have a master's in public health. So public health is something that, you know, at Gillette Health, we think is very important. And there's a lot of, like positive messaging, positive work that's been done in the public health field. And there's a lot of contrarians out there that I, I think they really believe what they're saying. Uh, I don't think they're trying to harm people, um, but I think there's actually some harm being done there. So whenever you have these contrarians, you know, whether it comes down to like people that are anti-medication, you know, there's specific medications like statins that seem to get a lot of attention um, or people who are in the um, obesity space and they're anti-medication there. And I guess I could argue the point that in the traditional model, there's people in the obesity medicine space that are pro-medication for everybody, which I think is also not, not the solution. Um, but an example is, you know, and this is someone who is in the um, obesity medicine space. There was a 60 Minutes interview. I'm sure people are aware of this. And the obesity medicine physician there said that it doesn't matter if you diet, doesn't matter if you exercise, if you have obesity, it's like 100% genetic. Was sort of the gist of it. I don't know if that's actually quoting, but I'm sort of paraphrasing what the perception of that interview was. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have people that are saying, well, you know, statin medications are only gonna cause side effects. You're not actually gonna live any longer. If you do, it might be four days longer in the grand scheme of things. So I think both of these extremes, like these opinions in public health are causing harm. You know, I guess, what are some of your thoughts there, some examples that you see, um, given, you know, your master's in public health and interest in the space from like a systems level? Yeah, well, I think public health is a, the degree in public health is essentially a degree in statistics. And statistics is a great way of, of looking at data and understanding how it applies. Um, but one of the issues with that is that in, the literature that's published, there's always going to be literature that you can cherry pick and choose specific studies to back up your, your uh, confirmation bias. And so public health is really about identifying where the majority of the literature points to. So the majority of the literature points to that exercise and diet are extremely important for obesity and should be the number one um, intervention for that. And there's some studies that show that it is genetic, but the majority of the studies move in this other way. And so public health focuses on the majority of the evidence. And that is that you should be addressing lifestyle changes first. 
Yeah, and it's almost like they're trying to make the sort of run-of-the-mill metabolic syndrome where you have 70% of the people in the population who are, you know, overweight or obese at this point. They're trying to basically make that like a M4CR, uh, melanocortin receptor um, genetic mutation where these people have like pathologic hunger and hyperphagia where they just eat and eat and eat. And, you know, very often these people in childhood and early adulthood are having BMIs of like 40 and 50. And I, you can't really make an equivalency there. Um, and also when you look at exercise, even if someone is not losing weight, um, you know, you, you can't really just focus on the BMI as the like end all be all, because even if someone is exercising and not losing weight, their health is going to improve. Um, and then like to your point about people who are going to cherry pick studies that show no benefit from a health intervention, you know, there are studies where it's like, yep, it looks like diets don't work because people regain the weight. But then you look at like, what do some of those people do that do keep off the weight? And what are some of those public health interventions that we should be putting out the message on? It's just like, I don't think it's going to be solved in a very short time frame. just like smoking, which we chatted about a bit previously. You know, it took a lot of work to sort of undo the reassurance people received about like smoking, like, you know, smoking is, it's fine. We, we can't find a link between smoking and lung cancer. And then obviously we feel kind of silly looking back at that now, but I think it's going to be the same way with you know, the environmental things that contribute to obesity. So like the processed foods, um, you know, the green spaces, you know, people tend to be much healthier and lighter in Los Angeles because there's a lot of um, biking and running, you know, walking dogs, that sort of thing that I've seen there. So, I mean, if you look at that compared to, you know, something in like Alabama, right, where someone is in a rural area and they have no like green spaces, you know, that's one of the, I think the most, if not one of the most obese states, you know, it makes a big difference, like from a, like public health standpoint, what resources, um, you know, local government, state government is going to allocate towards trying to get those people healthier. Absolutely. Yeah. The epidemiology of obesity is really fascinating. Looking at a map uh, by state of obesity, it's pretty significant with uh, lower rates of obesity being on the coasts and Colorado, interestingly, because there's so much outdoor activity to do and uh, being really high, uh, high in the South and in some places in the Midwest. You know, one limitation with using these population studies in public health is that you can't really apply um, the exact results to individuals. That's called uh, ecological fallacy. So just because you deploy a, um, a lifestyle intervention to obesity and in a, in a large population, it decreases the average uh, weight by uh, 5% or something, you can't apply that to an individual. So if I was counseling an individual about losing weight, I can't say, based on this study, you're expected to lose 10% of your, your body weight because that's the average of this huge mm -hmm. population of 5,000 people lost, um, you would have to specify that to the patient and really individualize that, which I think is what Gillette Health does really well, is looking at the public health and the population health data and then um, synthesizing that for an individual based on their personal risk factors and their priorities. Yeah, it's kind of more like a, a weather forecast if you're looking like a week out or 10 days out. It's like, this is what you could expect. I guess you could quote the confidence intervals, right? It's like, Absolutely. you could lose anywhere from zero to 30 pounds. And on average, people lose like 10 pounds if you're looking at, you know, X study. And the more dramatic an effect is, the wider you tend to see those confidence intervals. So you know that that result is like has much more margin for error. There's a more um, heterogeneous result in that population. It's like not 90% of people didn't lose 10 pounds. You had outliers that lost 5 pounds, 30 pounds, like all over the place. Absolutely. And, and how I like to think about that is looking at the confidence intervals. So if the average is... 5% weight loss and the compensation goes from 1% to 9%. I like to say that 95% of patients in this study lost between 1% and 9%. So there's still an, an outlier of 2.5% on one side, on the lower, lower side, and 2.5% mm -hmm. on the other side. And that's also assuming a normal distribution, a normal bell curve, which it could be right skewed or left skewed. So all that stuff is really important when counseling a patient. Yeah. And you're sort of doing all this in your head, like when a new study comes out and I've seen you break these down on your Instagram, you will link to that. Um, but you'll kind of break down. It's like, hey, what does this mean for the, the population? Because there's you know some ridiculous epidemiology things out there like, um, yeah, add a serving of blueberries to your diet and your systolic blood pressure will drop by three points. It's like, you know, blueberries certainly aren't first line for hypertension. It's like, are they part of a healthy eating pattern? 
Yes, but you know, we're not prescribing blueberries for hypertension that needs more significant intervention. Absolutely. And there is a difference between observational studies and, and interventional studies. Mm. And usually in these studies, uh, like you're describing, they're asking, do you eat blueberries? So that's an observational study. They're not randomizing a, a, a group <laughs> and giving yeah. one group blueberries and another group a control. They're saying, do you eat blueberries? And usually the group that is eating blueberries has better health outcomes. You know, one example coming to mind is uh, a study that looked at people who eat kale chips, and there was much better health, health outcomes in the people who ate kale chips. But that selects for a completely different population that is thinking about eating in a more healthy way. And so it has nothing to do with the health of kale chips compared to potato chips, although there probably is some benefit. But the major benefit is the type of people that that draws. And so we got to be really careful with how we interpret studies and apply that to individuals. Yeah, the nutritional epidemiology is just so messy, like you yeah. speak to. And there's the healthy user bias is something that's so prevalent there. If you're just looking at like like subjective data, like 24-hour food recalls or what did you eat over the past year, like people that are, like I guess, healthy at baseline or maybe they're healthier at baseline because they made some of these decisions, like eating the kale chips, um, that's going to confound your results because more than likely that person is doing more than just substituting potato chips for your kale chips for potato chips. You know, some people you know, probably in the intervention group there would want to substitute their kale chips back to potato chips if that was the sort of study being done. Um, but I guess along the route of talking about outcomes here, um, this is something that'll be kind of fun maybe for people to listen to and we can kind of push back and forth on this. Now, talking about the outcomes based on like, you know, physician-led care versus um, like independent practice of nurse practitioners, which seems to be, it's like every day I see another you know, article coming up and it's like NPs now have independent practice in X state. And I don't know if people are aware of sort of the layers that go into that and what the outcome data actually says and the differences in outcomes between specialties. So, you know, sort of a theme here is like primary care, pretty reliably, it seems like the outcomes are equivalent, but those are being measured on kind of short timelines. And then in emergency medicine, that's where you start to see the discrepancy. And I think that's related to anytime you're in an inpatient, like more acute environment, there's going to be a smaller margin for error and a mistake is going to have a more catastrophic outcome. So I guess, what are some of your thoughts on, you know, like independent practice of NPs? You know, I've got, you know, my thoughts, which might not be popular with the AANP or with uh, a lot of nurse practitioners out there, you know, but kind of, I guess, what has your experience been like in, in terms of like supervising or NPs and like, you know, the training versus residency? And we can certainly talk about those things, but just kind of overall, what are some of your, some of your thoughts there? I mean, kind of the main thing coming to mind is just the variability in NP training and, and NP experience. I've worked with some incredible MPs, uh, you know, one sitting right next to me uh, that I've learned a ton from pretty consistently. And uh, I've also worked with some other MPs, uh, that I thought were maybe a danger to, to patients and, and the care that they had. Um, where I did my intern year, my internship training um, was in a full practice authority state. And so NPs can practice without authority from a physician. Um, and we were in a rural health system. And uh, I thought there was some very low quality care in the, um, in the GI department, which is essentially completely run by NPs. There was some MDs there, um, but completely the all night shifts were run by MPs and on the weekends MPs. And as an intern, you're often consulting um, the GI service for help. Um, and I thought there were some very close calls uh, and adverse effects that, that came from that. And then when I did my residency at Johns Hopkins, which is a big producer of, of nurse practitioners um, and a pretty elite nurse practitioner program, I worked with some incredible MPs and I, and I learned a lot, um, but I did notice a lot of MPs leaving that uh, large academic system to go start up uh, ketamine clinics. That was that was very popular at the time, um, and I found that uh, peculiar and, and and quite a bit, quite interesting because you don't see a lot of physicians moving from from clinical care to to some of these things. Well, certainly there is. Um, yeah, I think the last point there on the the sort of ketamine clinics, you just you're selecting for a different um, like person like. They fit the finished product coming out of a like medical school program and residency program. It's like they're probably less likely to like abandon their prior training and just say, hey, 
I just want to like, you know, make money and open a ketamine clinic and do this and that. Like certainly you do see some of that. But I think if you're looking at the absolute percentages of like how many physicians versus how many NPs have a ketamine clinic or a med spa, you're going to see a lot more like mid-level NPs and PAs that are going that route because they haven't had the sort of like hardening process or selecting for resilience. It's much more difficult to go through a like medical school and residency than it is to complete a like master's degree in nursing and get your prescriptive authority that way. And like you said, there's so much variability in the type of education and the structure of these universities. And like, you know, where I went, I think that the curriculum was quite well, but you certainly are going to get out of it what you put into it. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's much less in terms of like, um, I guess, rigorous testing and examination. Um, Like you have your, you know, step exams and there's certainly exams in nurse practitioner school, but you basically have your board exam at the end which is, I think it's like a three hour time limit uh, versus the step testing, which is like multiple days of testing. Sometimes one test may take multiple days, like correct me if I'm wrong there, but I think that's the the way it works. Yeah, we take three step exams kind of through um, training. So in medical school, you take two and then you take another one during after your intern year. Um, And those are multiple day exams. Um, and have multiple different components to it. And then you take one uh, for your, your board exam. So I took one for preventive medicine and I'm in a current fellowship now. So I will take another one for this clinical informatics fellowship. I think another thing coming to mind is a lot of the data that I'm familiar with is in the EDs, I guess, like you meant, the, in, mm-hmm. in the emergency rooms, like you mentioned. Um, and, and one thing that's coming to mind is uh, increased rates of antibiotic prescribing for viral upper respiratory infections which is contraindicated and you don't need antibiotics for, as well as uh, increased uh, consultation and, and imaging orders. And so uh, NPs tend, in these studies, NPs tended to um, over-prescribe antibiotics and over-prescribe imaging, which, which leads to incidental findings, uh, which is not a good thing for the patient, as well as increased cost. Um, and some of my understanding on why that happens is how NPs are trained compared to how MD and DOs are trained. And correct me, please correct me if I'm wrong, but MPs, from my understanding, learn in this nursing model where it's kind of more of an algorithm. You come with this uh, complaint and there's these different um, causes and then use the different treatments. Whereas the medical model seems to be more focused on organ systems and understanding the pathophysiology and then trying to wrap those all up in together. Yeah, and I think the it's not necessarily there's just a difference in that you certainly go through the organ systems uh, in different semesters in a nursing program but the amount of time and detail you get into in each organ system is much less mm. so you're basically looking at you know these these common things that happen you know, i believe in an average program you know you're looking at okay this is sort of the the standard workup for this and, and here's your differential and you're still putting that together but i think the difference is just in the terms of experience so you know, residency is, you know, what, close to 10,000 hours of clinical practice, something yeah. like that. Um, and one of the things that gets thrown out there, you know, with regard to NPs and their, um, I guess, um, clinical rotation that, you know, some of them like to call it a residency, it's not really a residency, uh, is something like, you know, I think 500 hours is the bare minimum. Different universities have different thresholds there. Uh, my university, I think it was you know, 700 hours, something like that. Um, And I did some additional hours in terms of my training just because like I enjoyed it, wanted to continue learning. I had a really good internal medicine physician that I was learning from. And I feel like I benefited from that. And we talked about the difference between like shadowing and, you know, actually doing clinical rotations. And I think a lot of NPs have this perception that they go and shadow and that's getting their hours. And certainly that's easier for the preceptor because then they're not having to like take the extra time, let the NP go independently, evaluate the patient or NP student, I should say at that time, independently evaluate the patient, come up with a plan, talk about, you know, what's good here, what's not good here. That's much more time consuming and it, you know, it's a, another burden. Um, and it could go either way. Some people really enjoy a mentorship role like that. And for some people that's going to make them feel very burned out. So in my mind, like shadowing should not qualify for clinical hours, but again, uh, unless you have agreements in place between the university and a health system, then you're going to have a lot of variability, um, just like acceptance rates in the, the mid-level programs. It's like you know, Purdue, a seemingly very prestigious university, 
Um, saw an article that came out the other day. They had something like 500 NPs that came through. And I can't exactly remember the time frame they were looking at, but it was substantially higher than a lot of other universities. And their acceptance rate was 100%. So if you see something that's like, you know, 100% acceptance rate, then what they're selecting for is not necessarily as high of a caliber. And I guess what's the, like, just because I'm ignorant to it, what's the acceptance rate for like a like medical school and then like the acceptance rate for like, a residency that someone's applying for? I do not know that off the top of my head. I think it's in the 20 to 30% for acceptance rate into medical school. Mm. Um, residencies, it, it depends on the specialty and the location. Certainly the, the higher competitive residencies, it's it's very low um, acceptance rate. Um, yeah. To, to contrast uh, the describing of the, the MP curriculum with the MD or DO curriculum, you know, we do some shadowing during our first year of medical school. Um, and some in the second year, depending on the type of program. But where I went to medical school, you started uh, doing clinical practice starting your second year, and you were individually seeing the patients um, and then presenting to the attending and getting feedback on your, um, on your presentation and your plan. And you did that all through your fourth year. So that entire time you're practicing as a, you know, a mini physician, essentially, where you're doing the act, you're not shadowing, you're actually trying to provide the care but under the wing of a supervising physician. Yeah, and I think that's where sort of, you know, on the tail end of this, like a lot of states still do have collaborative practice or supervising practice, they need a supervising physician. And in theory, that sounds great because, hey, you're, you're newly trained, you're sort of like, you know, uh, let's say you're a medical student transitioning from your medical student role to your resident role, and you still have this person you can refer back to or someone that should be supervising your care. Um, but a paper that we pulled up uh, looking at Massachusetts, uh, was like a year has passed since the full practice authority went into effect there. And um, the finding was that, you know, there was really not much reported difference in day-to-day -day practice, uh, the NPs working there. So my take on that is that it points to an issue on either the front end or the back end there. So either like on the front end, like when they're being supervised, there's not a lot of supervision going on or on the back end there, like, it's just like there still is some supervision in place. My inclination is that it's the former, that mm -hmm. even prior to the FPA being introduced, there's not a lot of supervision going on. Like for myself, uh, this is a good example because Kansas recently went FPA and I don't think that it changed my practice because I'm still going to ask questions like when I don't know something, you know, I like to get feedback. I think collaboration should occur regardless of if you're independently an NP, independently a physician assistant, even between physicians, just like in the medical model, like, you know, you're not going to try and know everything. You're going to like refer to experts and talk to other people, bouncing off ideas because, you know, like three brains is always going to be better than one. Yeah. Well, that doesn't sound much different than, than my practice as a, as a physician. I, uh, ask for advice very often and at Gillette health, we have a, we do case conferences where we talk about patients and I ask your guys' opinion on, mm -hmm. on how to provide care. Um, I guess, can you help me understand this? One, one reasoning for FPA that I've heard is that it increases the amount of, of primary care physicians and increases the amount of primary care access patients can have. One really big issue with the United States is we kind of have um, like an upside down triangle of uh, primary care at the very bottom where we don't have very many primary care doctors and we have a lot of specialists on top and that drives up costs and also probably worsens outcomes. In other countries, like Cuba is coming to mind, it's kind of the opposite. They have a ton of primary care doctors, so everyone can access their primary care doctor. They're going in every three months. They're being really aggressive about prevention and mm -hmm. lifestyle changes, and they have very little specialists, but there's less need for specialists because the disease are being prevented in the first place. So I guess my understanding was that there's not a lot. It's hard to bring in physicians to do primary care, partially because the amount of knowledge you have to know is, is so broad. And then the compensation is weak. It's, it's not as much as the specialists are. And so the idea was we can um, bring in nurse practitioners to help kind of subsidize that and build out that, that lower triangle so it's not so inverted and that's more of a column shape and we have more access to primary care. Do you, did you see that in your experience? Yeah, I, that's the messaging that comes across. Like if you look at these things that are put out by the AANP, they're certainly advocating for independent practice based on bridging that gap in primary care. And, you know, it, it's very convenient to just sort of blame the medical education system for physicians and say, 
well, they should just, you know, compensate physicians in primary care appropriately because you could have a, you know, say primary care physician that's getting compensated half of what a cardiologist gets compensated. So the incentive there is to like try to get matched to cardiology versus getting matched to family medicine. And there's a lot of things that sort of just get passed back to the family medicine or the internal medicine specialties. You know, there's sort of the quarterback and they're having to put all these pieces together. Um, day to day, it's probably a lot more, I guess, work. You could kind of look at it that way. So there's a problem with incentive there. But if you assume that that model's not going to change, like what can we do to bring NPs into this and, you know, giving them full practice authority? Probably there are more primary care nurse practitioners in practice now. But then you have the same problem, like you mentioned with the ketamine clinics. It's like the idea is, okay, these people will go into primary care whenever they're finished with their programs. But, you know, nurse practitioners are going to do the same thing. They're going to look at the numbers and say, well, you know, why would I go work in primary care when I can make double or triple the amount of money just giving people ketamine? You know, people are going to have different, um, I guess, morals and ethics. And there's different kinds of business models out there. Um, you know, certainly, I think... Most people go into the medical field very altruistically. They want to like help people. And then somewhere along the way, they kind of lose their way or they get jaded and they're like, well, you know, I'm just going to do this because, you know, it's, it's easier. And, and maybe these clinics still are helping people. Um, I think that, you know, ketamine therapy can be beneficial. You know, there's some data coming out surrounding this, but it's sort of an emerging field. And, you know, you don't want to be the you know first one that is giving this to everyone that walks through the door. Um, you know, it, and there's all sorts of different specialties of NPs that are doing this. So you've got family practice, you've got CRNAs that are doing anesthesia, they've left that and now they're doing just ketamine. Even got acute care NPs that are like, hey, I, I did my training in the hospital, but now I'm giving ketamine to people that with depression outpatient. When in their curriculum, there's not a lot of like mental health management. Um, I would assume the same for CRNAs. And again, I'm assuming here, those aren't the programs that I went through and I went through family practice, which is really across the lifespan. And sort of my unpopular opinion regarding NP practices, I feel like NPs are better suited in a very narrow scope. So patients who are, you know, if you're looking at primary care, probably the less complicated cases. And even in specialties, I think they would perform better if they get really good at one thing versus trying to go back and, and learn everything about primary care just because they don't have those like you know, four years of foundational medical school. Uh, most nurses are working in a hospital system, in a hospital, not working in a like primary care environment. I mean, if you have a nurse, an RN that works in an office environment, they're going to far excel um, in their careers in NP and primary care versus a RN who, you know, worked at a critical access facility, sat around and played cards, you know, had like two patients a night, and then they go back to NP school because they don't have that latent learning that happens when you're in an environment or even active learning like, you know, medical school is. So my focus, like even though I'm family practice and I can technically see anyone from a, you know, an infant to a 105 year old, I've narrowed my focus to adults because I don't think that I'm an expert in pediatrics by any means. Um, but I do feel like I have specific areas that I excel in and that's what I built my practice around is my strengths. And if I have an area of weakness, something I'm not familiar with, I'm reaching out to someone who I think is an expert in that place, you know, doing research and not just assuming that, hey, I can I can do this because I have full practice. And that's probably the sign of a good clinician, no matter what their training is. MD, DO, NP, PA is someone who can identify their, their limitations and their knowledge and, and reach out for help when they need it. You know, coming to mind is the Dunning-Kruger curve, where the less you know, kind of the more confident you are. And then as you start to learn more, you become a lot less confident and you know where your your boundaries are and, and where your expertise lie. And then if something comes that's outside of that, knowing that you have to reach out and get help. Yeah. And I think you see a lot of that when you're on that, um, you know, what is it, the, the slope of despair, like you're kind of trending down there. Then that's where a lot of sort of you know, imposter syndrome comes up where I think Everyone who isn't a psychopath has probably experienced at least a, a fleeting moment of that where it's like, like, oh my gosh, this stuff is so complicating. Like, what did I get myself into? Um, but then reminding yourself, it's like, you know, hey, like you actually have a significant amount of knowledge. You know, look at all these other you know, cases that you've managed, all these other people that you've been able to help. So like bring yourself back to reality because it can be very easy to become 
you know, like burnt out, you know, which we'll talk about causes of burnout later. You know, in, in nursing, you know, in the hospital environment, I think the biggest cause of burnout is, um, I guess there's a couple things. There's like alarm fatigue there because something like 90 plus percent of alarms that go off in hospitals are not for emergent situations. But the expectation is you respond to those as if, as if it's an emergency every time. Another thing is the, the staffing shortage, which is probably being made worse by um, more and more NP programs popping up and more and more people leaving that hospital environment. Hmm. So, I mean, that's, you know, it is what it is. I don't know that you can sort of put that cat back in the bag at this point. The same thing with the, you know, independent practice. I guess if we could go back and say, hey, maybe we will like open up some of these pilot clinics where we like staff NPs or give them approval for full practice authority. And then we can kind of track those outcomes over time. Like maybe that would have been a good way to roll it out versus saying, everyone in the state of such and such. Now all those in. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Keys can have independent practice. Yeah, what is the future for uh, FPA in the United States? It seems like it is increasing the trend where more and more states are getting FPA. In, in 15, 20 years, will every state have uh, full practice authority for MPs? I don't know if it'll be every state. I mean, it's at the state level. So that's going to depend on, unfortunately, it comes down to uh, individuals who are not in the medical field. I mean, it's going to be your Congress people, you know, mm. senators, um, representatives, those sort of people that are going to be voting on these. And a lot of times they're going to be voting based on public perceptions. And you have, you know, these two groups of people, you have physicians and nurses who are both like, I think like number one and number two, as far as being the most trusted people in public perception. So like the average person, they trust their family doctor more than anybody. They trust their like nurse that's taking care of them more than almost anybody. And the public perception of both of those groups is very good. Um, so then you sort of just have like, how willing is our organizations like the AMA to push back against that? And then how aggressive are organizations like the AANP pushing for that independent practice. And if you're looking at like, you know, a numbers game, the, the representatives are just going to do what they can to sort of keep, um, I guess, keep their, um, the populations they represent uh, as happy as possible so that they can stay in office. I, I don't know that there's a really granular look at what specialties should or should not be um, having this independent practice. So like, independent practice in an ER setting is very different than independent practice in a primary care setting, very different than independent practice running a ketamine clinic. Yeah, that's a good point. And I guess I'm curious, why is there full practice authority for physician assistants, which is another group of um, providers? Yeah, it's lagged behind. Um, physician assistants do have a handful of states where they can have independent practice. And, and again, it goes back to even if they're being supervised, how much supervision is that really? Is it like a review of 10% of patient charts? Or are they consulting on most cases, you know, cases where they you know, don't know things? It, it, it's a very, um, I guess, a very great area. There's not any like explicit guidelines for these sort of collaborative or supervising agreements. Um, but I think, you know, the physician assistant, this kind of gets into politics again, but you know, the amount of, like, there's not really a precursor to a physician assistant. The precursor to a nurse practitioner is a nurse. So a physician assistant, a lot of those are coming from a CNA role or from a, like, medical scribe role, um, those sorts of practices. And they don't really have these big, powerful lobbying bodies behind them. So 
that's that's my opinion as to why it's lagged behind. Is that 100% correct? I really don't know. Um, and, and that's sort of the argument for nurses and independent practices. You know, you've had these thousands of hours, like, you know, I guess if I count overtime, I probably had you know, over 10,000 hours of clinical practice in a hospital, you know, doing patient assessments and, you know, being in a float pool like I was, I was exposed to a lot of different pathology. Uh, it wasn't just like taking care of patients after a specific kind of neurosurgery. You know, that would be a very limited uh, experience versus like a float pool where you may be on cardiology one night, you may be on a like renal and diabetic unit, then you may be on the orthopedic floor. So you really see and exposed to a lot of different things. So that sort of a background I think is you know, beneficial. And that 10,000 hours is not gonna be equivalent. Um, and there should be some sort of a floor that's set, I guess for RNs going into these NP programs, where it's like, I think there are some programs out there where they don't require clinical experience, or it may be a very small amount. You know, it may be something like a year or two years. Um, and then again, it's a very heterogeneous one year, two years. You don't know like, where someone has been in their practice. So I don't know. Those are just some of my thoughts, um, like on, I guess, why the NPs, like that movement has been more successful and the PAs have been less successful because they're not necessarily doing, you know, clinical exams as a scribe or um, as like a CNA, medical assistant, those sorts of things. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And then to the point, maybe 10,000 hours should be the limit. I mean, I guess I'm thinking of the Malcolm Gladwell book, Outliers, that looked at a bunch of different experts and mm -hmm. how they became experts after 10,000 hours of use. I think his uh, one of the examples was the Beatles. They played over 10,000 hours of shows in Holland at a um, after nightclub uh, before they really came up in the UK. And by the time they were starting to play big shows in the UK, uh, they were working well as a team because they had that 10,000 hours of experience. So maybe that is um, the threshold we, try, we should be trying to meet. And I, I should say a correction. I think the, the PAs changed their name from physician assistants to physician associates. Uh, and so maybe there is some lobbying push for them to get uh, independent practice as well. Yeah, I saw that. That's, that's kind of interesting. And I, I can take it or leave it. I, I don't really care what a, a group of people calls themselves. But some physicians have had some interesting pushback here. Like, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I think medical Twitter is a really funny, really interesting space and some you know, very disgruntled physicians like we, well, they're not associates. They're like a level below us. They're called mid-level providers for a reason. It's like if they voted to call themselves the Avengers, would you have to call them the Avengers? You know, PAs, physician Avengers. <laughs> um, but in any case, I'm just having some good laughs there. So we've talked about, you know, you know NPs and, and the lack of incentivizing primary care that are sort of tearing apart um, and, and destroying the medical establishment. Uh, now we'll talk about clinical alerts. Um, so, you know, the number one cause of burnout um, in physicians is the EHR and all the alerts that people get. And uh, your work is building more of these alerts, right? Yes, I'm <laughs> a, a big fan of these alerts. Um, the electronic health record is a fairly new uh, tool in, in our toolbox, essentially, um, and since the 2010s, we've been digitizing all of our record keeping and documentation. And this has partially been done by uh, Meaningful Use, which is a federal program um, to get hospitals and health systems uh, to digitize their, their record system. So we've had EHRs technically in, since the 80s, but there was very slow uh, uh, adoption of that. And then uh, during the Obama era, he, uh, they released this Meaningful Use program, which gave um, federal money to health systems who adopted uh, electronic health records. And so since then, there's been a huge uptick in the amount of health systems that use EHRs. Um, now it's, uh, I think it's over like 97% of hospitals use electronic health records and every single health system I've ever worked at uh, uses these. But it's been a very recent change um, and has completely altered how, how care is delivered. When I was a resident, I would spend maybe less than 10% of my time face-to-face -face talking to patients or on rounds with my attending. The rest of the time I spent in a little closet documenting in this electronic health record. So it is a, a big aspect of uh, how healthcare is delivered right now. Um, from a documentation standpoint, from a legal medical legal standpoint, um, as well as all our prescribing is done electronically. Um, and so since all care is delivered through this one central 
tool, this EHR, uh, it's a great way of improving the quality of care that's delivered with different uh, pop-ups and different alerts and different ways of uh, changing how the note template is displayed uh, based on the results that are um, entered into it. And so I think there's a lot of cool opportunities to uh, improve quality by uh, addressing these alerts. Yeah. And we kind of talked about alarm fatigue a little bit earlier with, you know, most of these being like false alarms. So let's call it, you know, 90% of the alarms that go off in a hospital are false alerts. Like it's not a emergency situation, um, but you still have to take the time and respond to that. And there's sort of this alert fatigue that's a similar phenomenon within the EHR. So I don't know if these surveys have been done, but if you, you know, ask the average physician, you know, how many of these alerts in the EHR are like, relevant or important or like you're glad they're there like i would guess you know they would say maybe like three quarters of them they're not happy with or maybe a quarter of them they find useful um, i guess my perspective on this was like i didn't particularly enjoy the alerts when i was working in a hospital setting um, i found them to be you know useful as i was you know learning so i was a you know nurse practitioner student doing you know my clinical rotations internal medicine physician and there are these sort of um, quality metrics that you're you're trying to hit. So it's a reminder that hey, like you know, if you have a diabetic patient, you do your diabetic foot exam. Are they on a statin? X, Y, Z. These things, these standards of care that should be being met. Um, now I can see how like clicking through and having all those check boxes would be annoying to a, you know physician that's been in practice for let's say five years. It's like you you know this stuff forward and backward. You're in primary care. Um, you know, this patient is never going to take a statin. They've talked about it. They said, no, I'm not going to take a statin. But every three months when this patient comes in and they're getting their A1C check, you've still got that alert you have to click out of. So, you know, I guess um, examples of things that could be, you know, particularly useful are like, like, hey, this person yeah, is like 45. Now, like when a new guideline comes out, uh, colon cancer screening, right? Went from 50 to 45. So, if you're in your routine of like everyone who's 50, you're sending that GI referral, getting a colonoscopy. And then there's a change in guidelines like, hey, based on the newest evidence, we need to start doing this at a different time or in a different way. That could be a really good use case for like a, a clinical alert. It's like, hey, this patient is 47 and they still haven't had a colonoscopy. Like um, just as to prompt, and this wouldn't even have to go to a physician necessarily. You could have a, like, you know, a, a nurse in the office or a medical assistant sort of gets the ball rolling on that referral. Um, so I think that's a really good use case. Um, I guess, what are some examples of you know, what you see as the go between, uh, between physicians and the software engineers where there are use cases where it's like, you know, why is this even in here? And, and people are very annoyed by those sorts of alerts. You know, I think a lot of the alerts that direct patient care are um, frustrating to the physician. So I think that's kind of where my two jobs kind of collide. One, I'm focused on, on population health and improving uh, kind of the group averages for large populations. And on my other role, I'm a physician trying to provide the best individual care for the, the one patient in front of me. And so from a population health perspective, these alerts bring a lot of value. You know, that was a great example of the new changing guidelines. You know, you can provide education to the physicians and uh, require them to do continual med medical education, CME. Um, but ultimately, the only way that you can ensure that they're staying up to date with the uh, new recommendations is by changing the workflow in the electronic health record. And also to the point where there's so many more medications than there were 30, 40 years ago, and there's so many new diseases that are discovered. And so the, the workload of a clinician is quite a bit higher. And so kind of taking that burden off the clinician and kind of helping direct their, their care through the use of the electronic health record can, can bring a lot of value. Now, on the other side of that, as a clinician, that can be pretty frustrating because there's this art of medicine and it's not so cookie cutter. You can't just apply the same exact recommendation to everybody. And going back to our earlier conversation, a lot of those recommendations are based on, on population level data. Mm -hmm. um, that's mostly directed by the USPSTF, the United States Preventive Task Force, uh, which is um, an elite organization that looks at meta-analyses to determine recommendations. Um, but those don't always apply to every single individual patient. So if I'm trying to direct 
give the best primary, the best individualized care possible, uh, it could be frustrating if I'm getting a pop-up saying uh, this patient is due for their colonoscopy. When they have no family history, they have no risk factors, and I know they really don't want to get this done, um, it could cause more uh, difficulty in that physician-patient um, relationship than actual good. And so I think there's a, a fine balance between those things. And I think that's why it's important to have clinicians also be involved with creating these tools so that you have the end user in mind. For a long time, these tools were built without the, the end users in mind. They were built by the, the legal team and the engineers and the, the business people trying to optimize how uh, care is, is reimbursed for. And that leaves the, the main users out of it, the, the nurses, the physicians, the, the PAs, everybody like that. Um, so I think it's a, a fine balance where you have to bring in a multidisciplinary team uh, to address these things and really do good uh, end user testing before deploying them. Yeah, so it's like that alert that pops up, um, you know, that can be a distraction. It can also be a reminder. I guess it kind of depends on where you're at in your workflow. Like there can be a scenario where it's like, oh, you know, I'm glad that popped up and reminded me of this because you've got so many things that you're having to address in a traditional health system in a very small amount of time. So I can see the good and I can see the bad. You know, I guess that's uh, one of my downfalls is that I can empathize with almost any situation and like spin it into a positive for that side. Um, but I guess uh, one of the things I remember from my uh, clinical training was the physician I was with. He's like, he's like, you know, try to avoid, you know, interruptions, distractions. He's like, that's when people make mistakes is when they're interrupted or they have distractions. And, you know, I found that to be true. Like, you know, people will, you'll lose your train of thought and, and maybe that's helpful. You get distracted and then, you know, your, your nurse says, hey, you know, you've got a call for, you know, this, this prior auth. You've got to, you know, do a peer to peer five minutes with this other insurance doc. So you leave the room, you come back in, you're wrapping up the visit, and it's like, oh yeah, we need to get this referral for colonoscopy. Maybe that's a really good scenario. Um, and then you could have the, the pop-up itself being a distraction. So like you're, you're in the middle of your workflow, you're thinking about something you need to do for the patient, and then you have to click through three boxes to get this alert to go away. Like, yes, I'll address it later, blah, blah, blah. And then you lose your train of thought. So it can be a good thing and a bad thing. Um, I guess, in terms of the like the business and the billing aspect, because healthcare is a business, how much of that was in your you know, like residency? Like for me, I don't think I would have had much insight into that you know traditional medical model like CPT codes, how the business side of it worked, unless the physician I was training was specifically like, and he did specifically take the time to explain you know kind of hey this is how this works, this is how you want to be coding, you know this is going to help you a lot when you're first starting. Um, so I guess how much of that are residents exposed to in their training programs? You know, because it's, it's very focused on like the medical side and taking care of patients. But is there any kind of a business aspect to that? Or like, hey, these are the types of like EHRs and the things that you'll be doing when you move from uh, residency to attending? Very, very little. Um, in medical school, there was one week at the very end of our fourth year. So after everybody had already mashed into their residency and were kind of checked out, we were done with all of our courses and any kind of requirements. And this was um, kind of a vacation week, but it had some of the most high yield information <laughs> in it. And so unfortunately, I hate to admit, I didn't pay that close of attention, but we had a lecture on, on billing and a lecture on the electronic health records. And um, at that time, I didn't see much value in it. And retrospectively, that's a huge aspect of the care that I provide in my, my daily workload. In residency, I also got very little experience with that. You know, you're seeing patients on your own and you're uh, developing a plan on your own um, and you're writing your note on your own, but all, uh, all of it is billed under the attending that you're working for. And so I got very little experience billing and understanding which billing code to use um, in residency. And so this year I'm working at the level of an attending and I feel like I was kind of thrown to the wolves. I, I also got another a few lectures about billing, um, but it's very complicated between time-based billing and complexity-based billing. And I work in the outpatient setting, so it's um, there's two different ways to bill for that. Um, and our electronic health record training also is, is very minimal. It's just two or three days. It generally takes me, I've worked through multiple different health systems at this point, and it takes me three to six months to even kind of get comfortable with the electronic health record, know where things are, know how to navigate it, know where to find exactly uh, the data I'm looking for, where, where is the echocardiogram in this, um, in this database. And so I think this is an opportunity to improve training uh, for our, our trainees, both in medical school and residency.
And I think one of the limitations of this is the electronic health record is such a new tool that many of our uh, mentors did not learn that stuff in medical school and residency because it came out after. I mean, if it came out in 2012, most of our attendings moved from paper charts to electronic charts as an attending. So I never learned uh, that stuff during their, their residency. And so now I think as um, time passes and there's more and more attendings who uh, have always used the electronic health record, uh, they'll start to empathize with that more and, and focus more on, on training the residents on how to bill and how to uh, use the, the EHR as effectively as possible. Yeah, that makes sense that if you have the, you know, the residency programs that when those were developed, there wasn't a this sort of prolific use of the EHR that it just wouldn't be incorporated in the curriculum. And then, like you said, as more and more people like as it's like it becomes more of like the way it's always been, then you'll see more of that EHR component perhaps integrated into those training programs, probably towards the tail end, because, you know, you want your core of that to be like, hey, you know, we're we're focusing on like medical care and, and you're going to build up resilience and all those sorts of things. And then you have these very resilient, you know, physicians that come out of training and they get blindsided by this EHR and it's something that they just you know, weren't prepared for. So that's probably why it contributes to burnout because they haven't sort of gotten that, you know, uh, efficiency down. Um, and then it's always changing, you know, EHR changeovers, like as we were talking about, is kind of a, a very risky time. You know, hospital systems, they pull in extra nurses to be on staff during EHR changeovers. Um, so like a lot of travel nurses that are familiar with both EHRs will come in um, so that there's like all hands on deck and, and extra staff to go around so that, you know, patient care and patient safety hopefully is not compromised. You know, and you've got the same thing that's going to happen in primary care, I would assume, if a, a health system changes over their EHR. I mean, there's a potential there that some patients are lost to follow up because, you know, they're not getting the the prompts, they're not signing up for the new EHR. You can send those things electronically, send it in the mail, call the patient. But I would imagine that there's some loss of those patients to that health system. And then they're not going to be you know, having their annual physicals and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah. When you change your electronic health record or you uh, implement a new big workflow changing tool, we call that a go live. And those are very dangerous times for patients um, in, in the health system. I help staff a 24-7 a call line during that time um, to address any issues. And that usually lasts a week to two weeks um, where clinicians and every single clinician, the physicians, the nurses, the EMAs, they're all experiencing a new user interface um, for how they're documenting and providing care. Um, so there's, there is quite a bit of risk with that. You know, one, I guess, good thing I'm seeing a, a good trend um, for just this specific aspect, I think there's some other big consequences from it, is major consolidation in the healthcare space um, with these electronic health records. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in medical school, there were many different e electronic health records and a lot of different hospitals and health systems used different ones. Even I, I trained in uh, Chicago where I went to medical school and um, the hospital next door is a big regional health system. And between their outpatient clinic and their inpatient clinic, they had different electronic health records. So if you rotated between those two, you were using two different electronic health records. Whereas now, essentially, it's I think it's almost like 95% of the major health systems use two EHRs, Cerner and Epic and Epic controls the majority of that market share. Mm -hmm. So there are many issues with that, but from a trainee perspective and a quality perspective, there probably is some benefit because you're learning one uh, electronic health record. And then if you move to another health system, you there's a probably good chance you're using the same EHR. And so there's less uh, things to learn in that. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you during my training. Um, so I went from like, I was an RN in the inpatient portion of this health system. It was Ascension. Um, and then moving to the outpatient to do my like, nurse practitioner program and clinical training there, the inpatient and outpatient EHRs were different. So inpatient was using Epic and outpatient was using Athena, which I thought was really interesting because they, they don't talk to each other particularly well. You would much rather have some congruency between like the Epic and Epic outpatient inpatient. Um, and I guess that's the silver lining to some of the consolidation where these like smaller critical access facilities with like a you know, primary care clinic, some specialist clinics, um, you know, getting bought out by these bigger organizations, then they're gonna be able to 
uh, license and use the same EHR, which is probably an upgrade from whatever they were using. Um, and you know, there's always positives and negatives that come with a big sort of buyout. Um, I sort of you know, started working at this health system way back when they were actually recently acquired by you know Ascension, and people had mixed feelings about it. Like there were some things where it's like, well, now like um, hiring was one example. It's like instead of being able to bring someone in, interview them, hire them, and then have them onboarding like the next week, everything had to run through a sort of centralized process. So you would have a local interview, but then it would have to be reviewed by someone. Um, this is Southern Indiana, so that would go up to Indianapolis. Indianapolis would review it, kick it back down. And that person may have already gotten another job by the time you're saying, hey, you know, can you come in for your second interview? Or you, know, you can start onboarding at this point, or here's your offer. So you know, there's always positives and negatives to that. So I mean, I don't think there's any perfect solution. We just kind of adapt to what's in front of us. And when you look at it, it's like, you know, if we were going to think about changing our EHR at Gillette Health, it's like, well, it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't, because you know we get pretty good at the EHR that's in front of us, how to do all the things that we think are really high yield and important. Um, and really, the only alternative to that is like you know building your own EHR, um, which depending on what capabilities you're looking at, could cost millions of dollars. So for most you know, small practices, it's just not going to be feasible. So they're going to use these pre-built products that are out there. Yeah, and that's one thing I love about the EHR we use at, at Gillette Health. Um, it's it's very modular. Most of the EHRs are closed box. They're kind of like Apple versus window, Windows. <laughs> Apple, there's really little customization you can do. You essentially get the product as is, and you have to use the product as is. You can't really change it that much. Whereas the EHR we use is very, very modular. Uh, you can make a lot of different changes. You can bring in a lot of different data aspects. Um, you can build really cool registries. And so I think there's a benefit to that. Um, but for a lot, we are a pretty small uh, system right now and uh, are pretty um, innovative and, and, and quick to learn. Um, so I think it's okay for us, but a large health system, it makes more sense to kind of pick a more cookie cutter uh, electronic health record. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so I think this has been a, a really fun podcast. Are there any topics that we like haven't touched on that we thought about yet? I think. We covered most of them. Is there any like take home points for people from this? I mean, I guess um, contrarian wise, it's like for people that are listening, you kind of have to look somewhere in the middle. You can't look at someone who says like, oh, just like move more and eat less for obesity or someone that says obesity is 100% genetic. Like the truth always lies somewhere in the middle. Uh, but any other, I guess, take home points for like, you know, the layperson out there or for the provider out there who's listening to all this and kind of taking like, a few high yield points on? I think um, from our first part of the discussion, I think kind of mixing the, the population health uh, studies and using that as a kind of a, a baseline to direct your individual counseling is probably the best method to provide high quality evidence-based care to your patient. And as a patient to find the best evidence for yourself is kind of start with the, the population averages and then uh, find the studies that really are specific to you. Um, I think our discussion uh, about NPs was was very fascinating and, and eye-opening to me. Um, I think what I learned from that is that there's a lot of variability in the training. And so um, I definitely would not rule out not seeing an NP. I think I would go into it with a nuanced perspective. And I, I really enjoy working with you, James, and some of the other NPs I've, I've worked with. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I think those are great points. And I guess for the, you know, the, the lay person trying to, or the medical person trying to figure it out, it's like, you know, don't be worried if you're a like physician that you can't reach out and consult. I think physicians are exceptional at that in terms of like consulting a colleague or a specialist. Um, and for nurse practitioners specifically, I think there's this sort of issue of, of like, you said, the Dunning-Kruger and pride. Um, and they may be hesitant to reach out because it was like, oh, well, that means I don't know something. But there's always going to be something that you don't know and you don't want to compromise a patient's level of care or their health because you're too proud to admit that you don't know something. Because, I mean, you get very, I, I mean, I said there were certainly times where I was very humbled in my training. I was like, oh, I can't believe I didn't know that. I assume that happens in like medical school. You sort of, you know, you get grilled about things like my internal medicine physician that I was with would grill me about different topics and I'd be like, I feel like I was doing pretty good and the more granular they got, I'd be like, man, it's like, I, I really need to dig into that more. Yeah. And I think that's maybe an integral part of medical training is that uh, 
when you're being asked questions, we, we call it pimping, but it's maybe not the best <laughs> word, um, yeah. but they'll ask you questions and they'll ask you increasing questions uh, with increasing difficulty until yeah. you're not able to answer. And the point is to humble you and to show you your limitations. And I think that's probably good for any trainee, anybody trying to become an expert is to know those limitations and know when to reach out for help. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great place to, to kind of wrap up for today. So, you know, thank you for watching. Let us know what you thought about the podcast in the comments. You know, any questions that you specifically have or specifically have for Taylor in the, you know, systems level or public health or any kind of space. Um, you know, so again, thank you for your time. Thank you for watching and may God bless you with health and happiness. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.